The average human brain is about three pounds, and those three pounds control just about everything, including our happiness. But what if I told you we have a way we can sharpen our thinking and perform even better? We're going to talk with neuroscientist Wendy Suzuki, who's going to tell us how. This is Live Happy Now. The ancient Greeks defined happiness as the joy you feel moving towards your potential. To think about positive psychology, it's a science, and it's actually younger than the Internet, believe it or not. The reality is that social connection is, in the research, the greatest predictor we have of long-term happiness. You have some factors in your control that can promote the health and resilience and growth of your absolutely most important asset, which is your brain. And so it all comes down to understanding ourselves. There's a way for all of us to succeed, but but it might take different things. We're all looking for the same thing, and that's a way to bring a little bit more joy to our day. Join us as we look at the many different paths that lead us to that happy place. This is Live Happy Now. Hello and greetings once again. Welcome to another edition of Live Happy Now. I am your host, J.R. Houston. Pleased that you are making us a part of your day, wherever you are in the world, and however you may be listening. We do want to hear from where you are in the world, and tell us how you are listening. It can help us improve. You can find us at livehappyfacebook.com slash livehappypodcast at livehappy.com. We'll run that by you again later on in the program. And speaking of Live Happy, we want to tell you another edition of Live Happy is available to you if you haven't gotten the latest one. It is available on newsstands everywhere, and it is available on your phone. It is available on your iPad or tablet device. It is available in the Apple Store and the Google Play Store, and there's all kinds of special features that go with it. So please check out the digital or print edition of Live Happy Magazine. They are our partners in happiness. Aww. Today, we're talking with Wendy Suzuki, who's a professor of neuroscience and psychology at New York University. And her research is focused on understanding the patterns of brain activity, underlying long-term memory, and more recently understanding how aerobic exercise may improve our learning memory and cognitive ability. Well, Wendy Suzuki, thank you so much for joining us. I know uh, life can get uh, pretty hectic, especially up in New York, but uh, we, we appreciate your time today. Oh, I'm just so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so this is, this is something that I'm always interested in, so I guess this is sort of an indulgence. How did you get interested in the study of brain plasticity? Oh, well, that's a very easy question to answer. Um, <laughs> there was a specific day that I knew I wanted to become a neuroscientist. And it was very memorable because it was the very first day of my freshman year at UC Berkeley. And I mm. happened to sign up for a, um, a freshman seminar class, you know, just small number of freshman students with a full professor talking about his or her specialty. Mm. And the topic that I was fascinated with was uh, the class called The Brain and Its Potential. And it was taught by um, a, a really phenomenal uh, instructor, um, Professor Marion Diamond. And I remember um, first what she looked like. She was is very striking, very tall, athletic, um, and she was wearing this very pretty, you know, skirt and blouse with a, a crisp white lab coat over it. And um, she started telling us about the brain and how it was the most complex structure known to mankind. And as she was telling us this, she opened up a box in front. It was actually a hat box sitting on the table in front of her. And out of that hat box, she pulled a real preserved human brain. Oh, wow. Of course, all of us went, wow. <laughs> I mean, I'd never seen a brain before. And so that was just so memorable. 
But what was even more memorable and what really made me want to become a neuroscientist wasn't just seeing the brain, but it was about the studies that she described that she had done in the 1960s at Berkeley that showed that if you raise rats in what she called enriched environments with lots of toys to play with, lots of other rats around, think of it like the Disney World of rat cages. Uh If you raise a rat (laughs) in the Disney World of rat cages, um, she found that the actual outer covering of the rat brain, the cortex, actually got thicker. And that was one of the very first demonstrations of adult brain plasticity, that your environment could actually change the physical anatomical structure of the brain. And I thought, one, I want to find a way to, that I could live in Disney World so my brain can be bigger. <laughs> and two, I want to study that and figure out how that works. So that all happened on the very first day of my freshman year in college. <laughs> and, it, and it's led down this path, which got you to studying the effects of exercise and the effects of meditation, both of which, uh, in depending upon your uh, preferences, can feel like Disney World, I would think, right? <laughs> it could, absolutely. If you're doing it right, it feels like Disney World all the time. <laughs> so what are some benefits on the brain that you have found uh, when studying folks who exercise regularly? Yeah. So I think one of the things that I like to share with people, because they don't realize this, is that just even one single exercise session at the gym, and I'm talking about aerobic exercise where you get your heart rate up. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that much how you get the heart rate up, but get the heart rate up, go to a good you know, 45-minute session of, of exercise. What that's going to do is first it's going to increase levels of neurotransmitters in your brain and the neurotransmitters that increase are the same ones that are decreased in depression so what you do get is an immediate boost of mood Um, Mm. so serotonin is going up dopamine is going up endorphins are going up which is the brain's endogenous morphine kind of painkiller and not only that but what happens immediately after a, a workout is that your ability to shift and focus attention gets better for a short period of time. This is a long-lasting thing. Yeah. But what you're doing is really uh, um, increasing uh, lots of positive and useful brain chemicals, hormones, and growth factors in your brain immediately after exercise that results in better mood and better um, ability to shift and focus, focus attention. And if you do that on a regular basis and, and increase your cardiorespiratory function, you're not just getting a better heart muscle and better um, kind of uh, body muscles, but you are also um, leading towards uh, increasing the birth of brand new brain cells mm. in yet another brain structure critical for memory, and that's called the hippocampus. So these are things that are happening all the time. You may have some awareness of it. A lot of people notice that mood is is improved with exercise, but there are many brain functions that are improved, and that's a goal of my lab is to try and figure out kind of the minimum amount of exercise you need to do (laughs) to get the maximum amount of brain, uh, brain improvements. Well, I mean, anecdotally, even for someone who is not a neuroscientist, I, I know that when I have done exercises or, or whatever, I always feel what I, what I term as a good tired. Like that, I, that made me feel really good. I'm tired, I'm worn out, but it made me feel good. And you yeah. mentioned that there's a short-term uh, immediate impacts of better being yeah. able to focus. As you stack those up, as you do more exercise, you make it part of a regular thing, 
does your brain make those pathways a regular thing or those neurotransmitters become turned on more regularly? Yes. That's exactly what we think is happening. This is the research going on right now, trying to figure out how how kind of the feedback mechanisms of the brain are being changed when you are are um, pushing the systems with regular exercise in these ways. For example, we know that these neurotransmitters change levels of um, certainly levels of growth factors are changing with regular exercise and, and increasing with regular exercise. But how long do they stay there? We don't know. And um, uh, these are the kinds of changes that are helping both the prefrontal cortex improve your attention as well as to get you more brand-new brain cells in your hippocampus. And we know that these brand-new brain cells kind of work like teenagers. They're really uh, engaged. They're, they're uh, activated at the smallest kind of stimulation, and they actually join memory circuits more often than the um, than the the old brain cells that are in your brain that were born when you were born. So um, there's a lot of important reasons to get as many of those, those brain cells in your brain as you can while you can do the exercise to, you know, stimulate that birth. Do you feel like we're heading uh, with that research and with that knowledge of what those brain cells are doing that we're heading towards better memory for people who are uh, better active? Will that be something that we can use to encourage people to be more active? Absolutely, and that's in fact one of the goals of my lab is to um, find that exercise prescription that is based on neuroscience research that can tell you exactly how much, how long, what kind of exercise for your age group, for your fitness level that will that will benefit um, you in certain ways. So mood will will definitely be benefited. How how much do you have to get? How much do you have to work to get your memory uh, benefited? And what if you are older and are starting to experience cognitive decline? Mm. What is the beneficial, uh, the, the, the perfect prescription at that level? So these are critical questions that, you know, address the aging brain. Um, one of my projects is to make NYU, my, my university, New York University, the exercise university. Mm. And I'm trying to develop programs to maximize um, um, brain function of our students who are learning, who are creating, who are writing essays all the time. What is the best workout to help them get the most out of their education that they're doing now? So these are the, you know, these are the things I'm most excited about, really. Yeah, and, 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 and certainly it's something that I think you mentioned it too. It can be applicable at all ages. I know I've watched uh, my grandparents and other people's grandparents, you, you watch them slow down. And you watch yeah. their cognitive ability uh, go away. But if and if we can find a way through your research or through uh, similar research, uh, ways of doing, mm -hmm. I guess, preventative maintenance before we reach that uh, period in our life, while we still have uh, quickly recovering muscles, I guess, uh, yes. to 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 sort of counteract the effects of time, I think that's incredibly important, and I, I think an incredible incentive to get involved uh, in exercise for brain health. Right. Exactly. And that's something that people have not, you know, companies out there haven't taken advantage of. And so the research that I'm doing, and I'm certainly not the only one, there's, there's a lot of really talented scientists out there doing this research alongside me that are leading in that direction. How can we improve brain function, not only for people that are experiencing cognitive decline in aging, but I want a better brain. I want the most 
strongest, the best memory, the best attention, the best mood that I could get. And I'm literally constantly doing experiments on myself to figure out how is this working. I test different times of the day for exercise. I test different kinds of exercise. And basically, you know, uh, as long as I get my heart rate up, um, uh, it's good. But if I have fun, basically I'm looking for the exercise that that is most enjoyable to me because there I don't have to work to motivate myself to go. Um, but, you know, I supplement my research in my lab with my own self-experiments. Which, which is you're walking the talk. That's, that's very important, uh, a very good example that you're setting there. Um, I would imagine that you would be the type of person who is very much in favor of physical education in schools. Is that a fair assessment? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> you hit it on the head, and I want not only physical education, but I want science-based education that will maximally help people, um, kids, pay attention, stay focused. Um, And I can tell you right now, it's not just constant sitting in your seat and and having eight hours with no breaks. That is Mm. not going to keep them focused. Um, But instead, it's going to be strategic addition of certain kinds of exercise. And it may change with different age groups. And it may change with people that are more uh, um, ADD, that have a diagnosis of ADD. I think that exercise can be uh, a very exciting, possible, and natural remedy for maybe not a cure for ADD. But we know that the, one of the quickest effects of exercise, we already know this, is to improve attention, your ability to uh, shift and focus attention. Mm-hmm. Do you think that might help kids with ADD? Yes, oh, yeah. I do. Absolutely. And there's benefits even for kids who don't. I mean, kids are kids. They're going to be so curious about the world that I I don't think forcing them to sit in a desk and learn these set things is going to be good for anybody anyway. Recess is probably just as important, even if it's not as structured. It's it's, it's a chance to get away from the structures of academia sometimes, I guess. Right. Absolutely. And I think there's beautiful experiments to do there. What is the difference from between um, kind of pure running and just getting your heart rate up versus structured games where there's both physical activity and, and cognitive kinds of strategy that you're using. What is best for different age groups? And can you at the same time doing uh, exercise help with socialization aspects mm. that you want to get in uh, at school? So I think these are all fascinating uh, and very, very important questions to be asking right now in schools. You know, that there's so many, so many kids that are taking drugs now for various ADD-related kinds of, uh, of things. And mm. um, I think that exercise can be a non-pharmacological uh, way to address these things. And there's also a suggestion that exercise can improve various symptoms of autism as well, the repetitive kinds of movements and the Uh, certainly the anxiety exercise is very good for both improving mood, decreasing stress and anxiety. And uh, that alone in, in autistic kids can be a help. And there's a little bit of evidence to support that, but more studies with larger uh, numbers need to be done to, to really figure that out. Well, I do feel that it's awfully coincidental that at the same time we're seeing a rise in the diagnoses of, of ADD and, and, uh, and uh, people on the spectrum 
that at the same time we're seeing a decrease in recesses and physical education courses in schools. That just seems awfully coincidental. If it's a coincidence, it's a heck of a one. Right. Are, are you someone who meditates regularly? I do. I do. So my book is called Healthy Brain, Happy Life, and it's really a science memoir about how I switched my uh, research program from one that focused on memory, which I was fascinated with for many, many years, still am, to uh, studying the effects of exercise on learning, memory, cognition, and mood. And when I wrote that book, I called myself a yo-yo meditator because I had tried everything. <laughs> I knew meditation was good, and I would get into it for a while, and then I would just fall out. And I'd try again, and I thought, this is it, and no, I didn't. But recently, I found something that, that has kept me as regular as I've ever been, and now it's coming up on a year of regular daily meditation. And what I've done is um, I've paired meditation with um, kind of a, a tea ceremony. So it's a tea meditation that I do every morning, and I simply include the, include, uh, the brewing and drinking of tea in the meditation practice. And for me, having that ritual of brewing and drinking tea somehow made it so much easier to do and very pleasant and um, very uh, and deeper for me. So, yes, I can now say with confidence, I am a regular meditator. <laughs> what are the benefits that you're seeing of that on, on your overall happiness and your overall uh, focus and attentiveness on your work? Well, I have to say that uh, since doing it regularly, I noticed that quiet time where all there is 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 tea, drinking tea, mm -hmm. and just kind of open monitoring of what I'm feeling. And, and, and I, I sit there at my breakfast table and I look at my plants all over my apartment. And I notice that that is really the only time of the day where there's just nothing going on. And I, I now crave that time every morning. And practical things are, this doesn't happen every day. And what I'm trying to do is, a, what I'm doing is an open monitoring meditation where I'm just kind of seeing things coming in, kind of body scan uh, uh, kind of thing. But what happens is ideas and stories and science experiments and kind of writing pieces that I'm working on often bubble up during this time. Not that it's, it's not like emails bubbling up and you have to answer them. Mm -hmm. But but the the direction of a story has come to me, the direction of a research paper. Um, it's mainly the, the stories that I work on for other writing that I do come to me in this time. And um, it's kind of a mind-clearing period that I feel like it just prepares my mind for for new ideas and creativity. And I find it the most valuable thing to keep kind of creative juices flowing in the area of writing that I do. That's that's fantastic. I, I, and I can get behind having a nice cup of tea in the morning as well. Uh, <laughs> I might steal that idea from you. Not that you Please have a copyright, do. but uh, it sounds fantastic. <laughs> uh, another thing that, that you've mentioned before and, and you talk about is the neurobiology that goes along with love and altruism and how that sort of affects the brain. Can you, can you briefly go into that topic a little bit with us? Uh, how, how, does, how does love affect a person's brain and, and the wiring therein? 
Yeah, yeah. So there's have been some beautiful studies done on what the brain looks like, that is the activation patterns in people that are experiencing new romantic love. And everybody has, uh, well, most everybody, if you're lucky, has experienced those feelings and, and it's, you know, you're just deeply in love and you can't think of anybody else but this person. And um, not surprisingly, a lot of the uh, brain areas involved in reward and pleasure get activated at this period of time. Hmm. But I have to say that the most we know about uh, the brain areas involved in, in this kind of uh, attachment uh, really come from some beautiful animal studies. So there's a beautiful hmm. animal model, uh, which is the prairie vole. It's a uh, hamster-like like animal. Hmm. And uh, the prairie vole is unique because it forms lifelong pair bonds. So males and females form uh, a bond when they're young. And um, after this pair bond formation, which actually forms after 40 hours of continuous mating. So think about that for a moment. I guess if we all uh, went through 40 hours of continuous mating. We might be bear- pair bonded for longer than we tend to be as humans. <laughs> My goodness. But, but it, uh, you know, this has been demonstrated in the wild. They, they, they mate for 40 hours and then after that they form this lifelong pair bond. And because it's an animal model system, we've been able to really understand the neurobiology underlying it and the really important role of oxytocin, uh, a hormone uh, for pair bond formation in the females, and the equally important role of vasopressin for males. So different hormones control this, this behavior in these perivoles. Not only that, but they've started to identify the genes that are associated with uh, uh, this pair bond formation. Hmm. Um, now, it's not going to be a direct translation to humans because humans do not form lifelong pair bonds, or at least it's very rare. Um, but uh, they are pointing us in the direction of the systems that we should be looking at, the systems uh, involving oxytocin, vasopressin, and also the pleasure system. So we're hmm. learning an enormous amount, and I find it absolutely fascinating. Um, I make it a point to try and go to the talks at the big Society for Neuroscience meeting where they they talk about the newest research in this area because I find it so fascinating. That is incredibly fascinating, and I would love in the future as you learn more and as, as, as studies come out to talk more about this and learn more about this because it almost makes you wonder, are those feelings, you know, those initial feelings that you feel when you're first in love and, and first together, and, and is that all chemicals or is that what what all happens there? Well, there's a lot of chemical changes in the brain. So this gets us to altruism. Mm -hmm. So there are things that we can do to change our brain chemistry. And one of the things that I highlight in the book, because I think it's such a beautiful story and and such a great thing for everybody to realize, especially these days when every other day day, there's a horrible thing that you read about in the news. So Mm -hmm. here's, here's the secret. Altruism, doing something for somebody else, whether they know it or not, activates the brain's reward system and it activates it as much as it would be activated as if when you would win the lottery yeah. okay so everybody imagines you know yeah my reward system would really go off the roof if i won the lottery but it turns out that you could activate your own reward system all you have to do is do something for somebody else and that is that is what's happening in your brain that activates the reward system based with dopamine Mm-hmm. the neurotransmitter dopamine. Uh, I'm simplifying here. There's, there's a lot more that goes on, 
But the the bottom line is if you want to give yourself a boost and at the same time do something good for the world, um, do something for somebody else. I just think that's a beautiful finding and a, a beautiful thought that that's all I have to do. And it'll uh, kind of snowballs from there because once you have you notice exactly. that these things are happening, I can pay it forward and, and, uh, and it just goes on and on. Well, your book is called Healthy Brain, Happy Life. Where can folks uh, find a copy of that book if they're interested? You could get it on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com. It's sold on all the big websites. You can go to my website, wendysuzuki.com, and it'll take you directly to a link uh, where you can buy it. So very easy to find. Fantastic. And while folks are tooling around the Internet, we encourage you to check out thebigno.com, and that's K-N-O-W, no, because uh, you've got a free online course that relates to a lot of the things you talk about in your book, correct? I do. I do. The course is based on my book. I'm really proud of it, and it's free. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And um, so check it out, and you can get a, a, a really great overview of all the neurobiology that I talk about in the book, um, telling you about exercise, meditation, as well as altruism. Well, we're, we're looking forward to being able to hop on the Internet here in just a few moments and check it out for ourselves. Again, that's the big no, K-N-O-W dot com. Wendy Suzuki, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, maybe talking with you a little bit more as uh, more research and more studies come down the line. Thank you so much. Thank you. And once again, thanks to Wendy for joining us. A fun conversation. And if you would like a sketch note of this episode, you can also sign up for a free course based on Wendy's book. It's all available to you, as we mentioned, livehappynow.com. And once again, while you're tooling around on the Internet, let us know what you think, what you want to hear, what you've taken away from these episodes. You can find us on Twitter at livehappy, facebook.com slash livehappy, or again, that email address, podcast at livehappy.com. Hey, join us next week as Live Happy Science Editor Paula Phelps is talking with audio branding ambassador Steve Keller about how the music you listen to can change the taste of your food. Paula, who lives in the music city, getting real musical on these podcasts here lately. I dig it. All right. For our good friend, Wendy Suzuki, and everybody at Live Happy Magazine, I'm J.R. Houston saying so long, and thank you for helping us to live happy. <laughs>